Welcome to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett McGarry. This week we must discuss the consternation that has erupted from the nominations at the Oscars. Plus, I'm Jeff Braun. I saw the new rom-com Anyone But You with Sydney Sweeney and Glenn Powell, and I rewatched a couple of superhero classics. Plus, can't wait to hear what Jeff has to say about those classics. And I watched a movie I didn't think I'd care about all that much. Not even sure why I even watched it then. But I'm glad I did because I liked it a lot. A lot. But first, the Oscars, and one of the Canadian nominees is speaking out about a couple of perceived snubs of his fellow Barbie filmmakers. I'm just Ryan Gosling is thrilled with his Oscar nomination for Barbie, but bummed the women behind the film aren't nominated as well. In a statement, he says he's incredibly honored and proud his nod comes for portraying a plastic doll named Ken, but he continues, there's no Ken without Barbie. But it's Barbie. And Ken. And no Barbie movie without director Greta Gerwig and star Margot Robbie. And to say he's disappointed they aren't nominated in their respective categories would be an understatement. Barbie snagged eight total nominations, including one for Best Picture. Jason Athenson, ABC News. Hollywood. We'll get into all that. Of course, the Oscar nominations were announced this week. The 10 movies up for Best Picture are American Fiction, Anatomy of a Fall, Barbie, The Holdovers, Killers of the Flower Moon, Maestro, Oppenheimer, Past Lives, Poor Things, and The Zone of Interest. I've seen seven of 10 so far. Just need to watch American Fiction, Poor Things, and The Zone of Interest. But clearly, it's Barbenheimer's year, and I think when it all shakes out, it'll be Oppenheimer. That's the big winner. It got uh, 13 or 14 nom- 13 nominations. I believe it was, which is one shy of the record of 14. Um, It's been cleaning up at all the other award shows, and frankly, the Best Picture and Best Director races are almost considered locks at this point, but these movies do campaign. There's still time for momentum to shift, but I don't think it will. I think it's uh, Christopher Nolan is clearly a masterful director, and it just feels like it's his year, and I don't have a problem with that, although, like, you know, I love Greta Gerwig. I've said it many times, and I look forward to whenever her year is, because clearly it's not entirely this year, but Barbie did get left out of a couple of those major categories, as we just heard. And while it's frustrating, it kind of tracks as Barbie feels like a comedy most of the time. And comedies simply historically do not do well at the Oscars. In fact, that it got the nominations it did get was kind of astounding. But the no Gerwig in the directing category is the most painful omission, at least for me. Uh, the degree of difficulty she faced with this movie is is something else. Uh, even her co-screenwriter, her filmmaker and husband, Noah Baumbach, told her when she was considering making the movies like what is the movie it's a plastic doll there's no story that uh, comes along with barbie so she just pulled it out of thin air and when you watch it you really can't imagine any other story that could have been told so um i just think it did a lot of really good stuff really well it deals with heavy important stuff which the academy likes And I guess that explains the America Ferreira nomination because she had the big important speech in the movie. But by and large, you know, it's dealing with its messaging in comedic and musical ways. And to sort of give us our medicine in an entertaining fashion is really hard to do. So I think Greta Gerwig really was robbed for Best Director. And no Margot Robbie for Best Actress is also kind of dumb, you know, being the lead character of the movie and all. But she and Gerwig are young. I'm sure they'll get their day sooner or later. And Gerwig did get the writing nomination. Margot Robbie's a producer, so she's included in the Best 
Best Picture nomination. They potentially don't have to go home empty-handed. But like I said, on the other hand, it's, you know, finally Christopher Nolan's time. Same with Robert Downey Jr., who's probably the favorite to win Best Supporting Actor in Oppenheimer. Um, as for the Best Actor, Best Actress races, they're not locks, which is nice. Many years, those are sort of foregone conclusions, but it's more fun when there's some surprises and some stuff is up in the air. I think the actor race looks to be a showdown between Oppenheimer himself, Killian Murphy, and Paul Giamatti for the holdovers. Murphy's great and deserving, but so is Giamatti. And Giamatti comes in with some Oscar baggage. One of the bigger snubs of the 21st century was him not getting nominated for Sideways 20 years ago, which was also an Alexander Payne movie like The Holdovers. So maybe he has an edge in a kind of he was robbed once or in a lifetime achievement kind of makeup Oscar way. And then the best actress, also not a foregone conclusion, Killer of the Flower Moons, Lily Gladstone would make it would make history by winning as no Indigenous actor has ever won. But Emma Stone's always popular with the Academy. She also won a Golden Globe. She cannot be counted out. Uh, for the movie Poor Things, I, though I do think that this one will go Gladstone's way, as Stone has won in the past, so she's already got one. You know, um, but we'll find out on March 10th. It's hosted by Jimmy Kimmel this time. And a couple of interesting notes I found out, Mar uh, Brett, along the way. Martin Scorsese at age 81 is the oldest director to ever be nominated, apparently, which I... That one actually surprised me because they got a, it's often some really old guys in that category. Um, and he's also got the most nominations for living directors now. This is his 10th nomination, surpassing Spielberg, who's been nominated nine times. And John Williams is nominated for the Indiana Jones score. And at 91 years of age, he's the oldest ever Oscar nominee. And uh, I don't know, I think... On March 10th, the thing I would like to see the most would be for John Williams to win an Oscar for the Indiana Jones music. Come on, how could you not love that? Yeah, that would be pretty cool. That'd be pretty cool. I I still haven't watched Barbie. It's on my list. I haven't seen pretty much all of these movies, so I can't comment on who got snubbed, who should win, etc., etc. And this happens not just every year at the Oscars, but every Awards show. There's a list of the nominees, and then inevitably within an hour, there's a list on that same website, whatever your website you're looking at, with a list of snubs and the snubs that are discussed. And I've gotten into arguments before with with people who say, "Look, there's no there's no such thing as a snub. There's the the number of nominees that are allowed in a category, yeah. and they pick the five they deem best." So I sort of I get that. And Margot Robbie has been nominated twice before for acting roles. She was nominated in 2018 for lead actor, lead actress in I, Tanya, and then in 2020, a supporting role in Bombshell. And I know that Greta Gerwig, whom you're a big fan of, she's been nominated a couple of times. Oh, yeah. And uh, so they've gotten some recognition already, but the optics. <laughs> yeah, the optics are hilariously bad. <laughs> I know. The optics that... The that this movie about taking shots at the patriarchy, this feminist movie, and the movies about Barbie, Ken gets the nomination, <laughs> and Barbie and the director do not. Like they, the Oscars would have been better if, if they're not going to include Greta Gerwig and Margot Robbie. Yeah, they, I think they would have been better to step in and veto Ryan Gosling's nomination. But I've also heard from a lot of people who say Ryan Gosling was their favorite part of that movie. Yeah, he steals many of the scenes he's in, if not every scene he's in. So, yeah, it's, in that way, it, it, there's merit in that. Like, he deserves the Oscar nomination for, like, 
you know, propping up the amount of the movie that he does prop up. And I think America Ferreira deserves her nomination as well. And and so, and that's the other thing of the optics is, let's not forget that America Ferreira also did get a nomination. And like I said, Robbie's got the Best Picture nomination as a producer and Girl has the Writing nomination as well. So it's, they're not totally bereft of nominations. And as far as snubs go, this this isn't a snub because I, I, I knew it wouldn't happen, but I was hoping against hope because there was some there were some rumbles that Godzilla minus one could get nominated got, in, for best picture. It got one nomination, yeah. best visual effects, which is actually a really interesting category. You've got the creator that got a couple of nominations actually, and that's available on Disney Plus now. So I've been meaning to check that out. Godzilla minus one nominated for best visual effects, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three, Mission Impossible: Dead Reckoning Part One, and Napoleon. But I think this one is probably going to be a slam dunk win for Godzilla minus one. What they were able to do with their limited budget. Uh, $15 million or less is truly, truly remarkable. And that's still playing in theaters. So if you haven't seen that one yet, go check that one out. Also, in terms of what's new at the movies this weekend... It's time for Barbie. Me? Yep, Barbie's back. What about Ken? I'm just a dude. Ken isn't something we're worried about. What? Barbie. And so is Ken. It is playing in theaters again for one week. It's not playing everywhere, though, so just check your listings. And new-ish in theaters is another Best Picture nominee, The Zone of Interest. So it's a movie that's spoken in German, but it's a UK-US co-production. Debuted in December in super limited capacity, and it's expanding its release this week, fresh off garnering five Oscar nominations. It's based, loosely based, on a book of the same name from ten years ago. Tells the story of the Commandant of Auschwitz and his wife, who are striving to build a dream life for their family in a house and garden next to the camp. It looks chilling, intense, mesmerizing. I hear it's got amazing sound, and that's one of the movie's Oscar nods. Best sound, along with best international feature, best adapted screenplay, best director for Jonathan Glazer, and the aforementioned best picture. And one more note, Jeff. I was watching a video on YouTube. I can't remember the the name of the YouTuber, but she was going through uh, the, the best international feature category, and she was laughing because she's like, wait, there you, that's what you get, France. Because I can't yeah. remember what, what movie Anatomy they submitted. But, yeah. but, but she's, Anatomy of a Fall got a whole bunch of nominations. And she's <laughs> saying, why would you not submit that? Yeah, that was a thing. France chose a different movie over Anatomy of a Fall. And then this other movie didn't get nominated where Anatomy of a Fall would have been a shoe in as because it got like, I think, seven or eight nominations. So it's including Best Actress for Sandra Hewler, who's also the actress in Zone of Interest. So oh, wow. she's having a good year because two of the movies she's in, in German and English and French, are both up for Best Picture. So it's a, pretty, a good year for international movies, at least for that one lady. And that Anatomy of a Fall, that was one of your favorites of yeah, last year, right? Yeah, that was on my top ten list. That's a great movie. Um, I, I think you, I'm sure at this point you can just rent it because it was in theater. I saw it a few months, I think in October we went to see it, maybe okay. November. So yeah. Cool. Maybe that'll come back. If that comes back, that's worth going to see. All right. So up next, we switch gears from the big screen to the small screen because I'm curious if this show will finally get Jeff Braun to pull the trigger and invest in Apple TV+. Plus. You are listening to The Couch Potatoes. 
Welcome back to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff. He's Brett. And the people behind Band of Brothers, one of my all-time favorite series, has a new World War II miniseries out this weekend on Apple TV+. It's called Masters of the Air. We're here to fight the monsters. The things these people are capable of, they got it coming. We came from every corner of the country with a common purpose. To bring the war to Hitler's doorstep. Two thousand one's Band of Brothers was about a company of paratroopers. A subsequent series from the same folks came in twenty ten called The Pacific, about a company of Navy men in the Pacific theater of war. And now Masters of the Air about some pilots in a bomber group. Oh, and the folks producing these shows are Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg. The first two series were over on HBO. This new one is on Apple TV Plus. So as Brett mentioned, I'm kind of hooped because I don't have it. I'm getting closer though, Brett. Maybe once this is close to wrapping up in March. I'll look into it because I'm constantly being offered a free month or three trial kind of thing. I don't want to pull the trigger on that because I know that's going to involve me giving them a credit card number and then having to remember to cancel it, which I am dumb enough to forget, which is probably how they make 30% of all their money. Um, Austin Butler seems to be the star of Masters of the Air. I see that Barry Kilgan is in it as well. And someone named Sawyer Spielberg. Wonder how he got an addition. Uh, It's getting decent reviews so far. We'll see how it goes. It starts with two episodes this weekend. Then there's a new one every Friday until mid-March, like I said. But uh, I, I can't imagine this comes close to touching Band of Brothers. The Pacific was good. It didn't come close to touching Band of Brothers either. So, but still, uh, if quality show is a quality show, and this looks like something that might be there. And you make a great point about the streamer. I remember when I signed up for Paramount Plus, and I had this bona fide meltdown because I signed up for the tre- free trial because I wanted to watch Scream Five. Okay, and I had no intention of sticking around. I thought, well, maybe if if it's worth it. And I, I was scrolling through their library, and I thought, there's some good stuff here, but there's not enough yeah. to, to justify me sticking around. At, although they've since added a whole bunch of shows I would watch, but I don't know. And uh, I, I couldn't remember. Did I Did I did, like lo- turn off my trial? Did I exit my free trial? And I was trying to log in, and it wouldn't let me log in. wouldn't let me log in because I had done it like three days earlier, and I just forgot. I actually <laughs> was proactive about something and did it. Usually I kick that can down the road right to the deadline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right to the deadline. That's I'm funny. so bad for procrastinating. And then I forget. Sometimes I realize, oh, shoot, I meant to cancel that. Oh, well, I guess we'll just keep it. Yeah, well, one more month anyways, right? And uh, talking about the cost of these streamers, Netflix is putting the final stake in its cheapest ad-free basic plan in Canada. They announced last year that it would no longer offer the $9.99 plan to new or returning subscribers. The streaming, streaming giant is phasing out the price level entirely for users who were grandfathered into the plan. Basic, pardon me, basic subscribers will now need to choose whether to downgrade to a $5.99 plan that includes commercial interruptions and most of the Netflix catalog, or pay more for the no-ads plans that start at $16.49 per month. I think I'm up over 20 bucks because I wanted the 4K. Okay. But when you think of the cost of Netflix and Prime and Disney Plus and Apple TV Plus, and they're all going up. Adds up. Real quick. And this is also interesting as well from Netflix this week. One of WWE's weekly shows, 
Raw is moving to Netflix next year as a major streaming deal. The media rights have been a hot commodity recently, particularly after the return of CM Punk in November. Here in Canada, WWE programming currently runs on Sportsnet, but you'll be able to watch it on Netflix come January 2025. WWE's documentaries, original series, and forthcoming projects will also be available on Netflix internationally starting next year. Shares of TKO Group, which consists of WWE and UFC, jumped by double digits on the news. Michelle Zedekian, The Canadian Press. So yeah, with more live television making its way to streamers, I'm curious to see just how is this going to change the landscape? I mean, they're essentially reinventing cable, and they're WWE Raw is going to have to reinvent itself because it's currently a three-hour broadcast. USA Network in the States have the, the rights for now, um, but they're, it's a three-hour show, which is way too long. It used to be, it was two hours forever, and I think they bumped it up to three hours for like a special night, like an anniversary night. Huh, and just, and, it stuck. And then it just stayed three hours. And I don't, I like watching wrestling from time to time, but three hours, man, like it's just too long. <laughs> so maybe without the, the ads, maybe they can condense it to two hours. They, well, if there's no commercials, they can't it, make it even longer. Like three hours with no commercials would Wouldn't be impossible. So, yeah. But it's Netflix. And if there's one thing Netflix likes, it's making things as long as it possibly can. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we still got to talk about another popular streaming show that ran its season finale this week. But uh, up next, Jeff wants to tell you about the rom-com that looks pretty cool. It's in theaters right now. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff. He's Brett. And there is a romantic comedy in theaters right now. I checked out Anyone But You. Have you guys made up? If he just stays away from me. Don't need an invitation for that. I think you do. feel like you can't leave me alone. Same reason I slowed down at a car crash. Look at him ruin our wedding. Ben! Hey. Both our exes are here. Let's just make this less awkward for everyone and pretend we're together. Let's be affectionate. Wait, I feel something. What the What the Anyone but you. They might be in you. I'm good. Probably a better way to check than what I did. Anyone but you stars Sydney Sweeney and Glenn Powell. Sweeney was in season one of The White Lotus and on the show Euphoria, while Powell was Hangman in Top Gun Maverick. These rom-coms live and die on the chemistry of the leads, and here it mostly works, sort of, despite Sydney Sweeney. She's not as strong an actor in every scene, which is too bad. He's good. She's sometimes good, and when the movie is working, I found it quite enjoyable. The plot is incredibly dumb. They meet and have a great night in uh, where they live in Boston, then they part ways over a very contrived misunderstanding. Then they're thrust back into each other's worlds at the wedding of his friend and her sister. And since everyone wants them to be together for some reason, they decide to fake it just to get everyone off their backs. Uh, but maybe they'll fall in love for real. And there are a bunch of different twists and turns buried along the way. It's all ludicrous. If you listen close, you can sort of hear the movie creak under the weight of all the pipe it's constantly laying to make this make sense. But the ending was nice, so I think I liked it in the end because if you, you can nail the ending, that really helps your movie quite a lot. The movie has a, a few familiar faces as far as the older cast goes. Dermot Mulroney and Rachel Griffiths play her parents while Brian Brown plays the father of his friend who's getting married. It's also set at his house in Australia, which has uh, little to nothing to do with anything, but it's a nice change of scenery. The Sydney Opera House features prominently too, as it must when a movie is set in Australia. That's just a rule. Like whenever they're in Paris, you got to see the Eiffel Tower. I didn't recognize anyone else in the movie. Everyone under 35 was new 
new to me. The movie's also very raunchy, which I was not expecting. It's closer to uh, Knocked Up and the 40-Year-Old Virgin than it is to Notting Hill or When Harry Met Sally or something like that. There's a lot of strong language. There is some nudity, and the entire movie has a lot of shirtless Glenn Powell and Sidney Sweeney in revealing attire. So if you want to leer at two of the prettiest people in Hollywood, this is... (laughs) Absolutely, the movie for you. Uh, that is, uh, is a flesh show. It is uh, much mucho skin on display. So have fun. It's the middle of winter, and I didn't mind that this was like a beach movie in Australia. That was probably the best part of it. But for real, there's uh, no need to rush to the theater to see this. You can wait for it to be streaming or on cable or whatever. I will give anyone but you two and a half uh, generous couch cushions out of five, Brett. All right, but yeah, and also if you want to like this movie is. Uh, you, Jeff mentions they are two of the prettiest people in Hollywood, but they're two real like rising stars. Glenn Powell was Hangman and Top yeah. Gun Maverick, and he has been in a couple of movies, and he's got one coming out this year in June, I believe. It's going to be a Netflix film directed by Richard Linklater. And Powell actually uh, co- collaborated on the script with Linklater, uh, so it's called Hitman, and apparently it's going to oh. be like a dark comedy. But he does he doesn't look anything like he. Like he's, they're, they're, he's going the opposite direction. Does he's he got, play like a serial killer or something? Oh, yeah. I guess he plays a hitman. Yeah. <laughs> so Not that, to be confused with Hangman. That's going to be a cloud over him <laughs> like three movies into his career. He was, I was a so very, so usually, you know, um, there's what, uh, I guess it's a stereotype that very pretty people can't be funny, but I thought Glenn Powell actually has some comedy chops in his acting, which would surprise me that he was as good as he was in this movie. Well, he was in that, uh, I believe, I, I'm, we'll check that right now. I'm on IMDb. I'll, 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 get, I'll point this out first. Sydney Sweeney, she's been in all kinds of stuff that's critically acclaimed, like The Handmaid's Tale. She was a big part of Euphoria. She's been in The White Lotus. She's also going to be in that new Spider-Person movie, Madam Web, which comes out, is that next month already? Uh, yeah, February 14th. But Glenn Powell, I think the show was called Scream Queens. It was on Fox. Oh, yeah. And remember, there was the one that, uh, that. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis was in that. It was like a horror comedy, okay. like a slasher comedy thing. So, yeah, I'm pretty sure he was in that. I don't have... Come on, where is it? I, has it been that long already? Oh, yeah. Oh, 2015, 2016, that's when that was on? And, of course, he, he played a real jerk whose name was Chad. So giving Chad's a bad rap everywhere, just like people uh, <laughs> named Karen have to deal with that nonsense. Yeah. Uh, okay, so two and a half couch cushions out of five for anyone but you. Thanks for reviewing that. I watched a movie over the weekend on Crave, and it's a movie I wasn't sure I'd ever bother watching, but a friend of mine watched it recently and enjoyed it, so I thought, why not? You got this. Only a handful of people in the world can do it. You could be the best, but it's dangerous. These are incredible stakes. You're going to be forced to make split-second decisions that could cost you your life. Get down! Whether you like it or not, you are in this race! Get in the fight! Yes, sir. Gran Turismo, based on a true story. Ready PG-13. Yes, Gran Turismo, a movie based on a video game, and the movie is based on a true story. The Gran Turismo games debuted in 1997. They've been ridiculously successful racing games, and this movie tells the real-life story of Jan Mardenborough, who used his skills as a gamer to win a competition and drive a real race car. 
And he went on to enjoy some real success, as crazy as the whole thing sounds. The movie didn't make a ton of cash, $44 million domestically, $121 million worldwide. It's at 65% with critics on Rotten Tomatoes, but get this, 98% with the audience. And here's why. It is fun, and it's got a good cast, including David Harbour, Jaimon Hansu, Leg- Legolas, and Ginger Spice. Orlando Bloom and Jerry Halliwell were in this. And in the lead role is a guy named Archie Madekwe, who's only been in a couple of other movies, but this will not be the last we see of him. So Orlando Bloom's character, he works for Nissan, pitches this contest idea to the car maker to bring in the best Gran Turismo players around the world and compete for a spot on their team. David Harbour is a former driver-turned-mechanic who is hired to train the prospective drivers. And Hansu plays Jan's dad, who's always chastising Jan for playing his video games too much. He wants him to be like his other son, a soccer player, and following the old man's footsteps. He is a caring father. He just doesn't want his son to waste his life playing video games. So let this be a lesson to you, parents. LOL. Video games rule. Soccer sucks. Just kidding. Anyway, Harbor is always fantastic. All the performances were good and fun. The competition stuff is neat, and the racing is really well staged. And the way that they incorporated elements of the video game into the races was pretty cool. The movie runs two hours, 15 minutes, probably 20 to 30 minutes too long, but I enjoyed myself. Nothing spectacular, but it was some good fun. Three and a half couch cushions out of five for Gran Turismo. And again, you can find that on Crave. And moving from Crave to Prime, just want to quickly touch on this. Damn, Reacher. When we were kids, we just wrote our names in it. Why'd you get to hit him so hard? I don't hit soft. Season two of the popular Prime series Reacher ended this past week about a hulking ex-military loner who just roams the land, getting into adventures and misadventures and beating up a lot of people with his big giant muscles. And this year, this season, he reteams with his old unit after one of them turns up dead and they're trying to figure out what's going on. So there's this mystery on who done it and then there's a mystery of why done it. And then all through the way, Reacher's got to lay that lay the smack down. What'd you think of it, Jeff? It was fun. I like how blunt he is sometimes. It's like, well, now we got to go kill some more guys. And he said that a bunch of times or whatever. So that sort of stuff cracked me out. He also ate a lot of Clark bars. I don't know if they paid for the advertising or yeah. if that's a thing in the book or whatever, but it kept coming up. I found that entertaining. I thought it was a great season. It was a lot of fun. It was, the action is always great, uh, and especially when, he, you know, when he's punching and shooting people and stuff. And the mystery was, it was okay. I think maybe the season one, mystery story was more entertaining than the season two mystery story but it still had a lot of good stuff robert patrick as the uh the bad guy um which he's been doing incredibly well since well i guess he's in die hard too but i guess he's obviously most famous for terminator 2 where he plays the molten metal guy that comes after him uh, and he was well, i guess it was the uh peacemaker series he was this not the villain in that necessarily, yeah. but he was a bad guy in that. Yep. He was so this guy. Every time I see him, I'm just like, ugh. He's he's, he's almost up there with the uh, or the guy from Die Hard One and Ghostbusters. Oh yes, <laughs> his name is escaping me right now, but you're all just picturing him, and uh, he's like the best villain of the '80s. Uh, Robert Patrick's maybe the most villain, uh, best villain since then for. 
minor stuff like this. No, that's good. And one of the interesting things about Reacher is I've seen a couple of criticisms that the show is dad TV, and All you right. can argue whether Reacher is whether dad TV is a good or bad thing. I've actually, the more reading on it I do, the more people say like, no, dad TV is not a bad thing because it, it's, it means that the show appeals to men over the age of 30 who are often dads. Yep. And, um, I don't know if it's dad TV, whether it's good or bad, I don't care. Like I, I like how this show, I won't call it simple because it's got a complicated plot, but it's simple and it's like no nonsense approach. It's just like straightforward. Yeah, it's a straightforward action mystery. There are fights, there are guns, there are good looking people. What's wrong with that? Nothing. They do and they do a pretty good job as the as they're solving the mystery. It's sort of you you know, sometimes you'll watch a show and they'll just reach a conclusion. You're like, well, that's quite the leap they took. How convenient that it worked out for them. This sort of seems like it's enough of it makes sense that I was like, yeah, okay, I buy this, you know? And Alan Richson has said on more than one occasion, he, he's often surprised with, because it clearly does not appeal just to dads because he, he, he gets stopped by like women in their 70s, women in their 80s. <laughs> and they say they love the show. And he says, what do you like about the show? And they say, the fights. <laughs> so it's so, grandma TV as well. <laughs> it's kind of universal. It's a universally, or it's a show that can work for pretty much every demographic, maybe not little kids. But uh, yeah. yeah, up next, we are going back into the vault. Jeff watched a couple of timeless classics. You are listening to The Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff, he's Brett, and I rewatched a classic, the first superhero movie for our generation. His name is Kal-El. He will call himself Clark Kent. But the world will know him as Superman. Yes, 1978 Superman. When I was a kid, two things were very exciting when it came to movies on TV, and that was whenever they would show Star Wars or Superman. I feel like this must have been a Sunday night thing. It was definitely a school night thing because I know the first five times I tried to watch Superman on TV, at least four of those times, I had to go to bed just when the movie was starting to get good, which for a kid meant that's when he finally turned into Superman. There's a quick shot of him flying out of his Fortress of Solitude around the 45 or 50 minute mark. But it's, I counted, 66 minutes into the movie before he rescues Lois Lane as she's falling from that helicopter. That's the good stuff. With commercials, of course, uh, broadcast TV back in the day, it must have happened around 90 minutes in. And if the movie started at 8 and I had to go to bed at 9.30, therein lied the problem. It was infuriating. And now, as an adult who can stay up later, watch the movie on Saturday morning if I want... I think it still takes too long to get there. Uh, it's a classic origin story gripe, of course. But the interesting part is I don't think there's really anything in the first hour that I would cut out. Superman is one of the better origin stories out there as far as superheroes go. Uh, you want to see the Krypton stuff, and indeed some of it's necessary for Superman too. And you need to see the Sm Smallville stuff as well and just get the sense of Superman growing up. Um, by the end of the movie, you also don't sit there thinking there wasn't enough Superman in it. I don't know. Maybe without the childhood trauma, it wouldn't bother me but every time i watch it now i still feel like come on get there already time's wasting why is this taking so long uh that said 
It's a great movie. The comedy team of Gene Hackman as Lex Luthor and Ned Beatty or Beatty as uh, his toady Otis is fantastic. Margot Kidder, of course, also fantastic. The more time I spend, you know, working in a newsroom, the more fantastic she seems because uh, we've definitely met people like her over the years. Just being in her presence is kind of exhausting because she's always dialed up to 11, even when nothing's happening. <laughs> uh, and of course, there's Christopher Reeve. His transformation from the meek Clark Kent into Superman while he's waiting for Lois in her apartment has been described as one of the greatest special effects in any superhero movie. And there is no effect. It's just him straightening his posture. But in four seconds, he goes from looking like one guy to a totally different guy. Good stuff. Fun movie. Looks like a big budget. It cost $55 million at the time, which would translate to about $250 million now. So yeah, that is a big budget. And it's all on screen. I mean, uh, Hackman got $2 million and Marlon Brando got $3.7 million for 12 days of work in which he refused to memorize his lines. Uh, the movie ended up making Making $300 million, of course, so money well spent. It's fun, looks great by 1978 standards, and despite some obvious special effects, things still looks great. And everything shot at the Daily Planet newsroom has become my favorite. I'd watch a TV series just set there. It looks fun. Uh, Jackie Cooper as the boss is hilarious. And then I watched Superman 2 this week as well. Uh, I don't know. Is the general consensus that the second one's better than the first one, Brett? I think so. At least yeah. more fun. I don't know. For me, I think it's maybe a draw. The second doesn't have the origin story issues, which would make it more fun from beginning to end. But uh, the special effects, I thought, were somehow worse. Um, the second one was a good troubled production. They changed directors partway through, that sort of thing. Uh, maybe that accounts for it, or maybe it was just that there was so many more effects in it that the seams were just more noticeable because you're kind of always looking at it. There's way more flying, and a lot of it looks really bad. Um, the big fight on the streets of Metropolis between Superman and Zod and his two friends there looks like slow-motion wire work, like it's not that great. Uh, but for the time, it was good stuff. In 2024, just not great. On the special effects front, apart from some of that, though, uh, that's also a great movie, if mostly for nostalgic reasons. I'm going to have to watch 3 and 4 at some point now. I have a soft spot for 3 because I loved it as a kid because uh, Richard Pryor's in it, and I idolized him as a kid, not having heard any of his stand-up comedy just from his movies. Um, it doesn't have a good reputation, though, and 4s is worse. And I remember actually, as a kid, being disappointed in that the first time I saw it. That Superman 4 is not a good movie. That was from those uh, canon and movie guys that made movies on the cheap and uh, I think that budget problems really show in Superman 4 but we'll get to that sometime down the road. And just one final thought on the visual effects in Superman 2 being not as good. Even the opening title credits. The opening credits of the original Superman are among the best in the history of cinema. They still give me goosebumps every yep. time. Superman 2 so lazy in comparison, uh, just not uh, awful. I don't know what they were thinking with that. And I hope that James Gunn uses, does like uh, like they did for Superman Returns and uses something that was inspired by those original yeah, yeah. credits when they do the Superman legacy. I'm Brett, he's Jeff, we are the Couch Potatoes. Remember, if it requires getting up off the couch, don't bother.